Welcome to Let's Get Fiscal, a money podcast from 7 News. I'm Damien, the sixpence of the coin purse of the finance world, joined by our digital wallet diva, Gemma Acton. Gemma, hello. Am I a diva? Well, not a diva in the best possible way. <laughs> Is there a good possible way? Absolutely. I mean, Mariah Carey springing to mind for me and, and a few others. The best possible diva, All right, All right. I'll take it. Thank you. <laughs> uh, now, cryptocurrencies. Now, they're not new, but they certainly seem to be gaining in popularity. We're hearing more about them, and I know for me... I still just don't get what they are and how to use them. Well, Damien, you're far from alone. Uh, Despite YouGov research showing a quarter of all Australians have owned crypto, other researchers also found that anywhere from 33% to 90% of crypto owners don't actually understand what they've bought, which isn't really surprising when we hear that there's a lot more to the crypto universe than just the two most well-known Bitcoin and Ethereum. In fact, Damien, take a guess. How many coins do you think are out there in circulation? Oh. Is it as many as there are Australian coins? <laughs> like, there's got to be thousands, surely. There are thousands. Try, try, try again. Uh, tens of thousands? <laughs> oh, I'll let you know. It's 18,000. Wow. Well, listen, it was 18,000 uh, before crypto went into a, a bit of a winter period. So from November, uh, the prices have been dropping precipitously, around 70% um, selling for Bitcoin. And so we have seen a few coins collapse. So who knows what the, the exact figure is now. But uh, that's a really great point for us to talk about crypto today. So is this a red flag about the the dangers of investing in the industry or is it a really good entry point because it's sold off so much? We are going to try and shed some light on what you are investing if you do do decide to go for it um, or just to give you a few more reasons to stay away if you think it's not for you. Joining us to decrypt cryptocurrencies, Dr. Sean Foley, Associate Professor of Applied Finance at Macquarie University and the Head of Decentralised Assets within the Digital Finance Cooperative Research Centre. Sean, welcome. Thanks for having me, Dan. Oh, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you are surely the man to talk about cryptocurrency. Totally, yeah. All right, let's start with the most basic and obvious question. What is a cryptocurrency? So a cryptocurrency can be thought of as a decentralised store of value. So you could think about, you know, Australia has... Aussie dollars, America has US dollars, and we have systems that allow us to move those around to pay for things or, or to move that store of wealth around. A blockchain like Bitcoin or you know Ethereum, these kinds of cryptocurrencies, they store the, uh, the value in that sort of native uh, currency unit. And they basically just facilitate the movement of that between different people. So I might have some Bitcoins, I can send them to Gemma, I could send them to Damien, and it would, the, the ledger would store who owns what. So you could think of it like, you know, Australian banking system may look after Aussie dollars and the US banking system may look after US dollars. You know, the Bitcoin network looks after Bitcoin, the Ethereum net- network looks after Ethereum, and there's a plethora of these sorts of networks. That, which is a good point. And when you say network, it's not controlled by anyone, is it? Could you just explain to us about the decentralised aspect of it? Totally, yeah. So the Bitcoin uh, network or, or all of the networks that we observe, they're operated by what we call miners. And so the miners incorporate transactions onto the blockchain. So the blockchain uh, only gets updated when a, a new block is added and the miners are the ones who add those blocks. So you could think of it uh, similar to the Visa network. So, you know, ANZ or NAB may store my Aussie dollars. If I buy my coffee, I, I tap my Visa card and it says pending right and it could fail it could it could succeed if the visa network was down then there would be no transaction that occurred even though i tap my card i sit there tapping it right and so similar to visa you might pay a dollar for your coffee that's a low price but you know um (laughs) if you paid a dollar for your coffee you you, one cent might go to visa even if i was with anz and the coffee merchant was with anz for facilitating that transaction visa would sort of take this fee and it's similar in the in in the cryptocurrency world the miners are incentivized to incorporate your transactions with a fee that you effectively volunteer to them 
Uh, let's talk about how many cryptocurrencies there are. You know, you mentioned Bitcoin, <laughs> you mentioned Ethereum. I read the other day there's 18,000. So what does that mean that anybody can get one going? What, what do you need to, to totally. get one off the ground? Yeah, so I think it's really important to understand the distinction between like a cryptocurrency and what we would otherwise maybe call a utility token. So a cryptocurrency is a network of, of miners or validators. So having this sort of group of um, computers that's decentralized that are trying to operate these puzzles or these cryptographic puzzles to solve blocks. And in solving blocks, they actually form the security of the network. And so these are sort of analogous to the Visa style of thing, right? There are, you know, there's Visa, there's MasterCard, there's Amex, but there's there's a, a whole payments ecosystem that sits behind that. With Bitcoin, it's really just Visa, right? Bitcoin can store how many Bitcoins there are. We can allow them to be moved. But we that was really version one of blockchains and the whole cryptocurrency uh, ecosystem. Ethereum really formed the sort of version two. And that's where the majority of these 18,000 cryptocurrencies that people think of, they're actually utility tokens and they actually sit on the Ethereum network. So we could think of it like... Um, Bitcoin's sort of like the, the Visa and Ethereum's more like Amazon Web Services. You can actually deploy all kinds of decentralized finance applications and this includes things like tokens. And so the initial ICO boom or initial coin offering boom that we saw in 2017 was all based on the Ethereum network. So you could imagine it like the Australian Stock Exchange, right? The Australian Stock Exchange, you could buy shares in it, but you can also buy shares in 2,000 other companies. And those companies are listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. The Australian Stock Exchange keeps track of who, who owns shares in BHP, who owns shares in Telstra, etc. And so the majority of those 18,000 um, cryptocurrencies that people think of are actually utility tokens that are sort of listed on the Ethereum network. And any movement in the ownership of those tokens is validated on the Ethereum network. So if we think about your question, how easy or hard is it to generate a new cryptocurrency? It's not necessarily that easy. You know, you need to build a protocol. So people have forked Bitcoin, people have forked Ethereum. There's others like Cardano uh, or Polkadot. You know, these networks often take years to get off the ground. And it's not just about launching an app like you might on the, on the internet. You need, because it's decentralized, you need buy-in from other uh, people to come and not only, you know, buy your token, use your token, but also to validate your network or to, to mine on your network. If we think about how easy it is to start a token on the Ethereum network, it's super easy. You could do it in like 10 minutes with about 30 lines of code. And I think that's why we've seen this proliferation of thousands of utility tokens that are designed to just do different things, right? So you could imagine, um, you know, basic attention token was one of the early ones. And they basically said, well, look, we're going to try and disintermediate Google. We made our own browser. It's called the Brave Browser. Um, and when you get served an ad, you'll get paid in Brave tokens or basic attention tokens. And so now if I'm an advertiser, I need to buy them. <laughs> if I'm a, a browser, I, I sort of get them and then I can sell them back to advertisers. So you can imagine these as utility tokens. They're sort of, they're designed, or you know, you could make a Gemma coin and it might not be designed to do anything at all. Um, <laughs> but look pretty. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which the real Gemma Reward does quite well. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. <laughs> I'll, I'll do that in my spare time. <laughs> get around to it this weekend. <laughs> so uh, 30 lines of code just to start a like, quote unquote coin or a token really yep. what do you do with that then so it's a great question. Um, you know, you could think about, some people talk about, I, I come from a finance background, right? And I've done a lot of study on the Australian Stock Exchange. A lot of people talk about the sort of bottom 1,000 Australian stocks uh, as four white pegs in the ground, right? That they're just, they've got the right to mine for lithium, cobalt, whatever happens to be hot in the ground right now. And they just pour money into the ground digging holes, right? Well, what's the value of that? Well, um, I don't know. Could they issue more shares? Totally. Uh, what can I do with them? Well, I might in the future be able to redeem them for something that's valuable. If I started 
Gemma coin or maybe let's say Sean coin um, <laughs> and I didn't have the capacity to look pretty, then maybe what I would do is nothing. Maybe I would just try to what we call shill it, right? I might just try to encourage people to give me money for it, selling them a bright and shiny story. So if we think about... Um, a typical stock, you do what's called an IPO, an initial public offering, and you make a prospectus, right? And the prospectus talks about the what the company's going to do, what the risks are, and we have a very similar thing in crypto. It's called a white paper. And it would generally try to, um, you know, define what this unit of account is going to be used for, like what in what circumstances are we going to use it? Now, we see uh, a lot of these tokens, things like Dogecoin, Shibcoin, and, you know, there is no fundamental value to these things whatsoever, right? Like they, they didn't even build a white paper. They didn't pretend to do anything. They just said, hey, this is funny. Um, and that's one of the key aspects. Like in that 30 lines of code, it doesn't define what the purpose of the token is. All it says is, hey, here's a token. It's, it's going to be fungible. There's going to be lots of them. Here's how many they're going to be. It could be a million, could be 10 billion and that's it this is the name of it this is the this is the symbol let, let, let's go back to the, the common ones though, like bitcoin and ethereum we can't do much with even those mm. you know like there, there aren't many uses for them but what are we working towards what are we hoping the use cases will be for them totally so i think it really depends again based on on the differential there between the sort of version one bitcoin and the version two ethereum so you could think about, there's lots of different types of stores of wealth, right? People use gold, people use Australian dollars, people use all different kinds of, of things, right? I might use bonds. Um, and so one of the components of the Bitcoin ecosystem or, or protocol is that there will only ever be 21 million of them in existence. And I think 19.8 million have been mined. And so Bitcoin is not useful. In fact, I have a, a paper called, you know, why you don't buy coffee with Bitcoin. Um, but Bitcoin is not super useful for transactions, you know. It's and clunky. It's, it's clunky, you know, like we've solved problems of payments really well. If you look at something like Visa, you know, you tap your card, money moves instantly. You didn't need to put your PIN number in. The guy gets his money within a second or two. Like what are we innovating on that that's going to be more efficient? I'm not sure. You know, in Bitcoin, the block time is 10 minutes. So even if I send you a transaction and it gets picked up in like the next block, and that's not a guaranteed, it might take two or three or four blocks, your coffee's going to be pretty cold by the time the merchant gets your, or confirms your payment, right? However, what it might be useful for is similar to gold, right? You don't walk around, well, I don't know, I don't walk around with, with pockets full of, of gold coins. Oh, Gemma's got a pretty heavy <laughs> handbag there. <laughs> because they're inconvenient, right? Like it, it may be useful as a store of wealth and people use it for different purposes. Like I was really surprised when I was in Switzerland and they had literally ATMs that would deliver you gold Krugerrands, right? And I was like, why am I withdrawing like physical gold from an ATM in Swiss banks? And it turns out it's really good for transporting money around, like money the, laundering, the gold, right? Gold is still something, you know, gold is something totally. tangible you can make jewellery from, you can yep. do other things with gold. Yep. Central banks are bought into gold. I'm still struggling to, to equate Bitcoin with, with even gold at So this I point. think the only reason, I, I completely agree with you. So there is no uh, well, there are different fundamental uses. So gold could be used for jewellery. It could be used in like industrial processes, like on motherboards, PCs, whatever. It could be used for burying in your backyard in case of the zombie apocalypse. It could be used uh, to avoid capital controls because you've got tax-free money in Switzerland. You'd like to get it back to your home country in your handbag. So there are different reasons people use it. And if you think about Bitcoin, like one of the, you know, I have a paper called Sex, Drugs and Bitcoin, how much illicit activity is uh, funded through 
cryptocurrencies. And one of the things that we found is up to 40% of the transactions up until 2017, so maybe not you know current, but were used for purchasing drugs online, basically, right? And so you can't use Visa for that. It's inconvenient to send gold via mail. It's expensive, right, to post stuff around. So what was really useful for maybe avoiding capital controls or purchasing drugs online was things like Bitcoin, right? And so it can gain some value through this like utility for which you can't use another asset. That's one reason, right? And I think that that was really the first reasons and then speculators started coming on board. And I think one of the reasons that people incorporate things like Bitcoin and Ethereum into their um, uh, portfolio of assets at the moment is definitely because of the anti-inflationary properties of things like Bitcoin. So if we think about gold or, or lithium is a great example right now, right? The price of lithium has skyrocketed. Well, what do we do? We go look at those four white pegs that we had and see if we can't get some more lithium out of the ground, even if it's expensive. Well, when lithium was at $500, it wasn't viable to get out of the ground. Now it's at 6,000. It's, you know, I can dig forever decreasing grades of lithium. So the more money we throw at mining, the like the lower grades, you know, we can, we haven't dug the ocean for lithium yet. You know, there's probably some down there. Um, with Bitcoin, it's different. So the more money you throw at mining, the, the block time is designed to be resilient to this increased like amount of people trying to solve the same problem. The difficulty just goes up. It doesn't mean that the more Bitcoins will be produced more quickly. And so I think the <laughs> people use it as a convenient means of, you know, avoiding capital controls or buying things online that they couldn't use Visa for. But they also use it for this anti-inflationary property that it, it may have, especially in times like now, right, where we might well, have 5 6% well, inflation. Well we, well, we keep hearing that particularly before inflation started to soar that uh, Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies in general could be used as an inflation hedge. Mm -hmm. That hasn't been how it's transpired. Since we've seen inflation really pick up, in the last seven months, Bitcoin sold off 60% or so. So it hasn't done its job that a lot of people were hoping it would do so far totally. in terms of being a resilient asset, keeping its value and its price when inflation started to move up. Mm -hmm. No, I, I totally agree with you. And so I guess these are the apparent uses, right? These are the things that people um, say that it gets used for. And I think in this sort of risk-off environment that we find ourselves in, you know, tech stocks have been uh, destroyed, uh, same as, as crypto. And I think that what we've started to see in the last probably two or three years is a lot of uh, financial integration in that a lot of institutions are buying into not just things like Bitcoin, but things like Ethereum, where you have this whole development of a decentralized finance ecosystem. And if we think about, you know, what is it used for? Um, with Bitcoin, I would say it really is just the store of value and, and the perception that people have or had was that it could be used for its anti-inflationary properties. If we think about Ethereum, it's kind of different. And and to me, it's a lot more like AWS credits, so Amazon Web Services credits, right? Because I can create a token, I can move the token, I can build a decentralized exchange, I can do decentralized borrowing and lending. And any of these things that I'm going to undertake in this what we call financial Legos will actually need to be validated or, or confirmed on the Ethereum blockchain. And so I think that then you can see some inherent value. It's not just a store of value that may or may not be better than, you know, US dollars or Thai baht. It's something that has some consumption that, that continues through time. Talking about mining and Bitcoin mining, what do you do when you Bitcoin mine? Because, you know, we hear about it being really bad for the environment now because there's so much computer power being used to mine Bitcoin. What is the actual process of that? So when you think about mining uh, for Bitcoin, there is a cryptographic puzzle. It's called it's called a hash, right? And so what you're doing is you're taking, um, let's say, that think of it as the number of the last block. So it could be like 10 million or 10 million at one. Um, and then I'm adding 
all of the transactions. I'm taking all of the transactions that are currently unconfirmed. So going back to that visa analogy, a lot of people have tapped their card, they've offered some fee, and they're waiting for that transaction to get confirmed. We dump all those transactions into a, a backpack, and then we take the, the contents of the backpack, the, the number of the last block, and now we start adding a random number and hashing it. Now, the hash is going to generate a 256-character like random string of letters and numbers. And the, the Bitcoin protocol has defined that the first N of these, so I think it's currently like the first 12, have to be zeros. If the first 12 are zeros, you've won the game, and you send that around to every other miner in the network. They take your block and they move on. They, they get a new back, backpack full of transactions and they move on to the next one. So it's really about this cryptographic puzzle. And, and so what that mean, ends up meaning for Bitcoin mining is that you want to do as many of the, it's guess and check, right? It's almost like doing long division. Like you're, you're doing long division, you're dividing a really big number by one, two, three, four, five, and hoping that you get 0.0000 by chance, right? So you just, you just guess and checking what, what's the remainder. And so you build this uh, machine or infrastructure that's really good at only doing doing that one thing. And so, yeah, then you've just got this network of people who are doing that. And then we can adjust the difficulty by how many zeros we put at the front. And so if you look at the start of the network, it might've been like two zeros and now it's like 12. And the more people try to mine it, then the, <laughs> the more zeros we require, which means it just takes more guesses. And so now you have this competition or arms race in like, well, who can guess it's quite wasteful, right? Who can guess uh, like as quickly as possible? And what that means is, you know, it's generally very energy intensive. And so, you know, I sometimes think of it like sticking a straw into the world and just sucking as hard as you can. Let's talk about that energy intensive at a time where there's an energy crisis on around the world. Totally. We've seen less people Bitcoin mine because it's just so expensive, particularly now to to pay for it? Yeah, so there wasn't a whole lot of uh, mining happening like in the Ukraine. A lot of it tends to happen in, in unfortunately, in China, where we have a lot of uh, coal power and they're not always, I don't know how to say it correctly, paying full freight for um, for that electricity. And so uh, we have seen like a slight reduction, but I mean, as, as that, that reduction can also occur with the price reduction, right? So it's a, you know, you're, you've got a fixed cost, which is I've bought a machine and then you've got the variable cost, which is I need to dump electricity into the machine. And so, you know, we have seen a bit of a reduction, but it, it is... Um, it is quite wasteful. And I think that's one of the real advantages of th something like Ethereum where they're moving to proof of stake. And so they're saying, well, look, why do we have to have this really difficult like hash? We only have that because we need to you know, maintain this stable block time. What if we had a different system? And so that different system looks like I, I buy some Ethereum and I sort of, I stake it I, or I lock it up into a, a contract and it's kind of like buying a lottery ticket. So, you know, as many, currently there's 400,000 people who've locked 32 Ethereum, so around like 100,000 Aussie dollars. And they get a ticket every, you know, we just distribute the tickets one on end. So you get a ticket one four hundred thousandth of the time. And when you get a ticket, it's your turn to solve the block. And when you solve the block, you get a little bit of new Ethereum and you get to bundle those transactions up into the backpack and collect the fees that came with it. And this is about 99.8% more energy efficient because, you know, your smartphone could do it as opposed to needing like a server farm in a really cold place. You mentioned with Bitcoin, there's only a, a limited number. What happens when you get to the end of that, I guess, blockchain? There's no more to be mined. Yep. What happens with Bitcoin then? So it's not really the end of the blockchain. So the blockchain can continue forever. What will happen though is that there's, you can think about the rewards to miners in two categories. So there's the block reward, which is the new Bitcoins that you're mining. And so these new, the number of new Bitcoins that you're mining in 2009, it was 50. And then in 2012, it moved to like 20 it halved to 25 and then it halved again to 12 and a half. It's currently at 6.25. It'll continue halving until I think 
2,124 approximately, at which point it'll go to zero. So the block reward will go to zero. But if we think about Visa, Visa doesn't create new Aussie dollars, right? They rely on people paying a transaction fee to maintain the network. And so it really was designed as a subsidization at the start of the network when Bitcoin wasn't worth anything. The block reward was designed there to give you something to reward you, even if there were no transactions. It's like working for a startup and getting equity. Exactly. Yeah. And then eventually you get a wage, which is that, you know, the transaction fees of the transactions you've bundled into your backpack will then fund the network. So that's the, that's the sort of idea of what happens at the end of the block reward. Well, I was going to talk about the the volatility of crypto we've, we've seen let's keep it simple we we'll just talk about bitcoins mm. i think a lot of them followed the mm-hmm. same trajectory recently huge swings is that something that's inherent with the nature of owning cryptocurrencies or will it be a point where it's it's not so much wild west anymore so one of the there's, there's a few challenges in crypto and i think one of them is the lack of regulation but the other is that There are a lot of, um, it's a big experiment, right? It's like, we're going to, like you said, you know, startups are a good analogy. We're just going to build everything. We're going to build the plane or fix the plane while we're flying the plane and hope the plane doesn't crash. So I think the volatility is inherent and there's a lot of structures that we're building, particularly in, you know, the sort of Ethereum decentralized finance ecosystem that really accentuate this. So you could even just think about regular um, trading. You know, if you buy shares on the ASX and you buy them with your with your savings and they, they lose half their value, you don't necessarily need to sell them. Like you can just hold on to them. But if you've gone to like a CFD provider and you've leveraged like 10 times or I don't know, maybe a hundred times and the value of the thing falls by half, you're going to get liquidated, right? You're going to get stopped out and that's going to then, you know, generate a, a, an order that goes in the same direction as the market. So if you leverage to go long and then the market falls, well, you need to sell at a time when the market's falling, which generates more selling pressure. One of the things that we see in the crypto ecosystem and particularly with the lack of regulation is that there's a lot of leverage trading and a lot of the decentralized, not just in centralized exchanges, but also in decentralized exchanges, you know, the um, the, the lending aspect of DeFi allows you to, um, or, or will exacerbate these ups and downs, right? And I think that's why one of these maxims that they have in the crypto ecosystem, you know, buy the dips, sell, sell the highs, um, you know, that wouldn't necessarily work in traditional finance because if, I don't know, you know, a virgin just dropped by 90% of its value, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a bargain. It could be going bankrupt. But, you know, in crypto, what you, you tend to get these overcorrections because of the leverage that's inherent in the network. When it goes up, everybody has more money. They can borrow more leverage and push it up even further. And when it starts dumping, all that leverage gets unwound. Everybody needs to sell and there needs to be some uh, buyer without leverage at the end of the day. Yeah. You talked about, you know, tapping your card to buy coffees and that, um, and how Bitcoin isn't the best for that. We've seen places like El Salvador, the Central African Republic, they have made it legal tender. Mm-hmm. You can pay with stuff with Bitcoin. Is, is it viable in the real world like that? Like, are people going to end up doing that? So it is possible, right? Um, so th- uh, one of the nice analogies I think about is, you know, uh, a house in Chippendale, right? Like, or a house in Sydney. I could pay you. Like if I, if I said, Damien, you know, I've got a day's worth of gardening I need done. I've got a house. Will you do my day's worth of gardening and I'll give you the house? You'd probably say, sure, mate. Like I'll, I'll, I'll just take the day off work. I'll go do that. Depends it's, on the stamp duty. <laughs> <laughs> it's an inconvenient to transfer store of wealth, yep. but nonetheless, it is possible to transfer and it can garner some real world value, right? So it is possible. And some of the ways that, that we're look or that have been in- implemented in places like El Salvador are to 
have effectively like a market maker. So, you know, I want $6 to pay for coffee or a margarita or whatever. Well, yeah, that's fine. So I sort of send my transaction to someone and say, hey, look, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll send it to you, but you, you're then going to like undertake the rest of the, the other half of the visa transaction, right? You take it, you sell it for, um, you know, El Salvadorian pesos or whatever, and then you, you transfer it. So it is possible and there are sort of tech startups that are doing it, but I don't think that like whether Bitcoin or Ethereum, they're really poorly suited to these styles of um, transactions. One of the reasons is that the timing, but the other is the sheer cost. And so if you think about the Bitcoin blockchain, it, you know, it is very similar to my backpack, right? It can only fit every 10 minutes, like let's say a thousand transactions. And so, you know, the, the, the gist of my, my paper, why you don't buy coffee with Bitcoin is effectively that if you're buying a house and you want to put that on the blockchain and Gemma's buying coffee and she wants to put that on the blockchain, you know, your house might be worth a million dollars. You don't really mind if it costs you $2,000 to get that transaction on the blockchain. It's a very small percentage of, of your overall transaction. Gemma, however, is not very willing to pay $2,000 transaction fee for her six dollar coffee and so it's probably you know skim soy flat like whatever so she's unwilling to pay that so she's only willing to pay let's say 50 cents and so if i'm the miner i'm greedy so i take you know damien's two thousand dollar transaction over Gemma's like 50 cent transaction and if this continues to occur then Gemma's transaction sits there for two days and is unfulfilled her coffee's now kind of cold and her like server's a bit unhappy so i think it's it's not just the the block time, there's also just the sheer cost of incentivizing these things. Like if we think about Visa, there's agreements, right? MX is more expensive than Visa, but, you know, by and large, the merchants are willing, you know, some people don't take MX, right? They just mm. say, well, it's too expensive. Sorry, I, I don't want to pay two and a half percent. I'll only pay one percent. And so I think it's, there's a, there's a cost element and there's also a, a timing element. So I don't necessarily think that the you know, blockchain world is going to replace or the cryptocurrency world is going to replace real world transactions. But nor do I think that's necessarily what it was designed to do. If we think about other types of transactions, like, you know, the SWIFT network that do interbank transfers between countries is very concerned about cryptocurrencies and, and the threat that things like stable coins pace to remittances and not just remittances, but also, you know, 40% of their um, business is actually facilitating the other side of funds like your super fund buying shares in the US or whatever, then they need to swap the Australian dollars that sit in my super fund for US dollars to buy things on NASDAQ. And so they facilitate the other half of that transaction. It's quite expensive and it's quite slow. So you're not talking about 10 minutes, 20 minutes. Like, I don't know if you've done a swift transfer, but it can take like two days, right? And if it takes two days and costs 5%, but I could do it with Bitcoin or I could do it with Ethereum or some other stable coin, well then happy days, right? And so I think that there are, there are use cases for these things. It may not be the day-to-day, -day, but it it sits higher up in the sort of financial value stack. For the average Channel 7 viewer, person who listens to, to our podcast, is it fair to say that the most likely reason you'd buy Bitcoin is either because you expect the price will go up simply because you think someone will want to buy it for an even higher price mm -hmm. speculation effectively, or they actually believe in the whole thesis around having a decentralised economy, I want something that operates outside of the central bank system, uh, sort of believing in the philosophy of Bitcoin not being controlled. Are there any other really pressing, compelling reasons why somebody would buy Bitcoin? No, I think those are really, really good characterizations of why people might buy it. So you've got the kind of like crypto anarchists or crypto punks, if you like. And then, yeah, just the regular kind of speculator who thinks that, you know, maybe the value of this thing can go to 100,000 or whatever. And I guess one of the, one of the interesting features of cryptocurrencies is that unlike traditional 
assets which have cash flows, right? I mean, I, I teach finance. Sometimes I teach finance one, you know, and we teach people about the time value of money, right? And okay, well, a company generates dividends. And if we discount all those dividends, then we can figure out what the value of the company is, right? It's very difficult to do that with a cryptocurrency. It's kind of more like gold or, or Aussie dollars. Like it doesn't have a future cash flow that we can measure, which means there's no um, there's no string on the kite. There's nothing to prevent it from going to a billion, and there's nothing to prevent it from going to zero. So I, uh, this can be quite. Um, Interesting to people, I think, especially if they're maybe, you know, millennials who are like, oh, well, whatever, you know, I'm not going to get rich buying BHP because my grandpa already has more BHP than me. So how am I going to get richer than my grandpa? So I think that, yeah, definitely thinking about that aspect of speculation that, you know, it is going to go somewhere in the future. But I, I think it also does come down to that fiscal security, right? So the fact that there is no, when you think about, when you talk about it, it sounds almost like sort of crypto anarchist, right? Like, oh, I don't believe in the man and like, I want to fight the man. I don't know that it has to be like that. I think that it can be um, somewhat different in the sense that, you know, I might be worried about how much, or I am worried about how much Australian, how many Australian dollars the central bank is going to print to get us out of our like, $60 trillion of debt or whatever it is that we've accrued through COVID, right? One of the really easy ways to pay back <laughs> as a, a sovereign country uh, debt that you have is to just debase the currency, right? So just print, inflate away the debt that you have. And I, I think that we're starting to see that, right? Like, I mean, notwithstanding other reasons for inflation, but, you know, we, we are seeing inflation, the likes of which we haven't seen for, for decades. And if we look at the UK, I mean, they're up at like 10%, right? Uh, how are they going to deal with this? Uh, I don't know, right? And so there's no guarantee that the Australian government will not tomorrow decide to double the money supply. They can just do that unilaterally and you don't get a choice and all of your savings, you know, we've seen this in places like Argentina, Venezuela, uh, Zimbabwe with the trillion dollar notes, right? Like there are situations in which central banks lose their credibility. And so I don't know that it has to be a crypto anarchist, but I think it can be, well, I know that there will only be 21 million Bitcoins or I know that the Ethereum has a really constrained supply. So you know, this it works in these sort of economic factors, right, of supply and demand. A lot to think about there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. A lot to think about. I think I'm going to go back and listen again and unpack <laughs> that again. Uh, it was so helpful to get your insight into that because I know for me, like, you just go back and forth and go, yeah, crypto, Bitcoin. It's complicated. There's lots of, like you said, there's 18,000 of them. It's like, you know, what are the different things? What do they do? And, like, to get your head, I mean, to get my head around it, it took years, right? Sean Foley, it appreciate it. a lot better. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> Sean Foley, we appreciate your time. Thanks for coming Thanks, in. Appreciate it. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. One organisation calling for stronger crypto protections here in Australia is Consumer Group Choice, who says laws are lagging behind the exploding popularity of cryptocurrencies, leaving us all vulnerable. Patrick Varey is Choice's senior policy advisor, and he joins us now. Hello, Patrick. Hi, Damien. Hi, Gemma. Great to see you, uh, Patrick, and more importantly, great to hear you for, for all our audience who, who doesn't have the pleasure of seeing you this morning. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Yeah, my pleasure. Patrick, let's start off with talking about what Choice wants. You know, as, as Damien mentioned, um, you guys want to see more protection in place. You just don't think that regulators are moving quickly enough to to respond to the popularity of cryptocurrency here in Australia. What can you tell us about how interested Australians are in crypto? Yeah, we were surprised by the level of interest in cryptocurrency by Australian consumers. Um, about one in five Australians have either purchased or interested in buying crypto. And this is largely the result of the crypto industry, you know, having a relentless marketing campaign towards consumers. Like you can't go past the shopping centre, you can't, you know, go to a stadium, you can't watch TV without seeing ads for cryptocurrency. And we think that's just such a big factor 
in consumers' decisions. The, the, the crypto industry is kind of building a level of mania and hype around what these assets are that they're selling. And what we're seeing more and more is that people are getting their fingers burnt. Are there any protections currently in place for Australians? Is there anything that is saying, you know, look out, here are the dangers? There are very limited protections. Uh, the industry is almost unregulated, with the exception of, say, the Australian Tax Office um, and uh, certain protections around money laundering, anti-money laundering. But by and large, you know, if you're an investor or you know, or mum and dad investor, and you're going out and looking at purchasing crypto assets, you, you you're entering a really unregulated, risky, and highly volatile market. Patrick, let me ask you: We're talking about crypto as a whole, but there are tens of thousands of, of crypto currencies right now. Is it right to consider them all as one homogenous group uh, or is there a way we should think about them, some being uh, more potentially volatile and dangerous than others? Yeah, I think um, every day we see a new digital asset pop up and, you know, there, there is a variance. But what the regulations at Choice and other consumer groups are calling for is the regulation of the exchanges themselves. So rather than try and regulate and, you know, have a whack-a-mole approach for each asset that pops up, think about the exchanges that sell it and ensure that, you know, when you log onto your phone and you click an app, that app itself is subject to strong legal obligations. Um, And I I think there is variance, but at the end of the day, um, we just need protections for people, irrespective of the kind of coin or asset that it is. Well, just on that, what kind of things would Choice like to see happen in this space? At its very core, we're calling for the same kind of rules that apply to the stock market as to the crypto market. Um, You know, right now, the crypto industry actively promotes market manipulation. There's a strong incentive for folks online to actually pump up the price and get members of the community to, you know, purchase crypto and then suddenly cut the price and people lose tens and thousands of dollars. So really strong protections around, say, market manipulation, uh, protections around preventing scams, and also just making sure that the markets are fair because in every other consumer market, there are strong laws around, you know, the Australian consumer law, and, and that's what we're calling for. There's been some noises about creating a really strong regulatory framework for cryptocurrencies and digital assets here in Australia. As we all know, things can take a really long time to happen when they go from high-level idea through to actually policy implementation. In the meantime, how can consumers best look out for themselves? Look, our advice to consumers is to be very careful. You know, we, we are seeing such an increase in scams on crypto exchanges. The ACCC has said this is the number one scam reported by consumers. About $130 million has been lost last year. So be really careful if you, you know, you see an ad online on Facebook by a celebrity and just be really cautious. Um, if anything says it's too good to be true and you have that sense, it very likely is. And whilst the market is unregulated, it, it's just a really high risk and volatile place to enter. Um, we, we've seen such massive swings. We've seen, you know, the collapse of Terra Luna where, you know, tens of billions of dollars were wiped off the market essentially overnight. You know, you know, we've seen Bitcoin, the price drop by about 60%. And that's just on the prominent coins. There's such deviations and market manipulations from players that, you know, the average consumer wouldn't be able to see. So our advice is just to be very cautious. Is anyone still buying Dogecoin, by the way? 
I'm not. I'm not too sure, actually. Yeah, <laughs> certainly not the founder who keeps on saying he thinks the entire thing uh, is, is is rubbish, and people should be very careful. So it's fascinating to read his comments. Um. <laughs> Absolutely, and I know our own David Koch struggles with uh, these whole crypto uh, scams online because his face keeps popping up in articles and social things. Have you had that problem, Gemma? Uh, no, I haven't had it yet. Thank goodness. Um. <laughs> this podcast might catapult you to that stratosphere. <laughs> I'm okay if it doesn't. Um, Patrick, a very very quick last question before you go, and this is putting you a bit on the spot, you might not know the answer, but are there any countries which you're looking towards as um, inspiration that are leading the way when it comes to regulating, just uh, taking a closer watch over this space? Yeah, there's there's not really a single country that have been very progressive and taken the leap towards having this, you know, these safe laws. Um, I think a number of countries are reckoning with this right now. You know, policymakers over in the US are really thinking about what the law looks like. But I think it, there's a real opportunity for Australia to be world class in this situation. You know, have some of our consumer laws around protections on misleading and deceptive conduct are some of the best in the world. And I think there's really an opportunity for Australia to lead the way um, and for our regulators to be world class in this situation. All right. Great to hear your advice and also your insights. Patrick Veray from Choice, thank you. Thanks, Damien. Thanks, Gemma. Thank you, Patrick. Don't forget to like, follow, subscribe on your favourite podcast platform so you get notified of new Let's Get Fiscal episodes. You can also stay up to date with more business and money news at 7news.com.au. I'm Damien Huffman and this has been Let's Get Fiscal, a 7 News Podcasts production. Listener.